There is a new study out from the Pew Research Center on what teachers, parents, and the public think about culture war battles of curriculum in public schools. We're discussing it today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education and democracy, where we dive deep into the headlines and add new perspectives about how America educates its young I am Citizen Stewart. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is the Citizen Stewart Show. Ravi, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Well, okay, one thing for the listeners, I'm doing a debate on Thursday for listeners in DC. I'm doing a debate at the American Enterprise Institute on Thursday evening. We'll put in the show notes, the invite to that, uh, but people could see me debate. It's a debate about whether Democrats should embrace educational savings accounts. So it should be a pretty spirited deal. And there's also an online component of it too. So people, if they want to watch online, could watch that too. So we'll put that in there. I think they should have gotten some seriously opposed Democrats to to have that. I saw the lineup of who's going to be there. They are. So. My buddy Greg Meyer from North Carolina is like very opposed. Like he doesn't even support charters. Yeah, he doesn't even support charter schools. So. And this is a friend of yours? Yeah, man. I, I'm friends with all... First of all... I know that you're surprised that I have Democratic friends, but this you know is that is how I spent most of my adult life is within <laughs> the Democratic Party. Well, listen, good luck with that particular debate. I think this is actually becoming a thing nationally. I'm seeing more opportunities for people who have different beliefs to share a stage together. And I'm actually kind of happy about that. The more that we can do that the better. So let's jump right in. Uh, we got three news stories to talk about really quickly. The Irvine School District spends $1 million in legal fees to fight a family's request for special education services. Special Education Today, written by John Willis Lloyd, discusses the case, and it's highlighted in the Wall Street Journal about a California school district, and they sp they're spending a lot of money to fight a parent's request to have their daughter's get dyslexia, services for dyslexia. The parents, Sharon Landers and Joseph Galliano, they have faced all kinds of resistance from the school district. And initially, the school district denied that there was any need whatsoever. And it does look like they're just trying to get out of paying. What the parents want is $40,000 a year to put their daughter into private services and in a private school so that she can get the services that she needs. Robbie, what do you think about the idea that special education services is really something you do have to fight for often as middle-class families? Uh, middle-class families have to spend time. They have to take time off work. They have to create a binder of conversations and emails and whatever. But the ultimate goal really oftentimes is to get private services that the school districts can't deliver or aren't delivering what happens if everybody starts doing this? Yeah, I do think this This reminds me of the New York situation that we talked about many episodes ago where the, the city of New York is spending, I don't know, something like a billion dollars a year uh, for families to leave the system and go to private schools. And that was not a flattering story. It was showing how in it was clustered in affluent neighborhoods like the Upper East Side and you know, there were very low utilization in places like East New York. And, and at least according to the reporting by ProPublica, strongly suggested that this was parents finding a backdoor way to get the district to cover the private school education, uh, which one could argue, as I will on Thursday, whether districts should uh, or parents should get vouchers to go to private schools writ large. But obviously, clustering it to the affluent is not the right way for society to function. That's what we already have, right? Now, in this case, it, it, it I'm not sure there's as much of a widespread issue as there is in New York City, but this feels like a, a cousin of that story. It's the district saying, you know, not that your kid shouldn't get services for dyslexia necessarily, although that, that could be an outcome here, but saying that we don't want to spend money for private education for that, which seems to be what's motivating them to try to to fight the classification. This went all the way up to the Ninth Circuit. So they fought this for years, spent a ton of money, and the Ninth Circuit wound up upholding the family's right to leave and seek services for the dyslexia in the private system. And the district was on the hook for the litigation costs. So big loss for the district. But it's so hard to say because you don't want a system where Affluent families use special education as a backdoor to pay for all sorts of services that nobody else has and to leave the system. But you also want a system that's properly providing for students with special needs. And the biggest question I'm left with here is, well, why would the kid have to leave the system in order to get services for dys dyslexia? Uh, that should be something that a any district in the country should be you know, totally fine handling. So I just have a lot of questions. 
Yeah, I think there's a few things here that are really important. One, if you're willing to spend a million dollars in legal fees, <laughs> it means that you are pretty uh, animated about not having this one case set a precedent because it probably could open the floodgates for a lot of money. So they didn't settle. So the district didn't settle. To me, that's a very good sign of the fact that they think that there's a compelling reason not to. When we talked about this in a previous episode, we also talked about Texas. And in Texas, there's a law firm in Texas that worked with the School Boards Association to train school boards on how to deny parents special education services and to make it onerous to be able to even ask for or get the special education services. And part of that was because Texas had a cap on how much you can spend on special education. So to be able to stay within the cap, districts were just finding clever and artful ways to deny services. Now, guess who you can't always deny services to? The reason that I know the story that I just said to you is because they pissed off the wrong parent. They pissed off a college-educated middle-class parent who loved her kid quite a bit and started digging into this. And this would not be a story at all if it wasn't for that parent actually fighting for their particular kid and uncovering all of the information about how the districts were conspiring to deny kids federally mandated services that they that they were entitled to. I don't know if that's the case in this particular story, but man, don't piss off middle class people who have time. Yeah, I, I I think this is all a matter of like the deeper issue is a question of trust in a system where people trust each other and trust the system. This doesn't become, uh, you know, lit litigious in this way. People kind of, they come together and they figure out how to best educate a kid. And I don't know if or whether any of the parties on this side are responsible for that mistrust, but it's a complicated story, right? Like parents with legitimate kids, you know, legitimate needs for their kids that aren't met get frustrated when the districts view them as a hefty price tag that they're trying to avoid. And then districts mistrust parents when they know that, you know, certain parents are overusing certain de designations like ADHD, like in New York to get their kids like free horseback lessons. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. those two things come together to breed significant distrust. And I suspect that there's a lot of injustice that if you if you're too permissive then a lot of money leaves the system and it goes it is spent in a super inequitable way and if you're too distrustful then people who really need help and aren't being served by the system aren't getting it so it really is a conundrum yeah so for your debate that you're having this thursday on esa's one of the reasons for a long time that i was very supportive of school choice vouchers is that many of the programs nationally if you look at ed choices list of the programs across states many of the the programs were aimed at exactly this issue which are there are some services that school districts just don't provide and in those states they do pay for you to go to like here in Minnesota, there's a school called Groves Academy. It's actually a private school for kids with special education needs. And the school district routinely help kids go over to that school. And that school even shares information with the school districts. Like they, there's some interchange, but the districts make the assumption that, you know what, it's expensive, but it would be cheaper to send a handful of you guys over to Groves Academy than it would be for us to start some program that's only going to like, you know, help about 15 kids, but it's going to have a big, big staff. But this was one of the things that ESAs started doing was many of them, the requirement to be in them was that you had some special education need or that you were low income. I still support that. I still support like uh, that version of ESAs. I just don't support giving you know a subsidy to rich kids to go to SeaWorld. But that's another topic for another time. The second story on our news list here is Holocaust education requirements fail in the Washington state legislature. A bill in Washington state aimed to require schools teach students about the Holocaust and other genocides, which ultimately failed to become law. The bill introduced by Senator John Braun faced debate over its timing amid the war in Gaza. I want to keep going and you know say much more about the story, but <laughs> Robbie, what do you think about that? So two things I'll ask you, what do you think about? Number one, what do you think about the requirement in the first place? And second, what do you think about the requirement failing due to current news, like uh, current circumstances, isn't education supposed to be about what's eternally true, not just, you know, kind of of the moment? So two questions there. What do you think about this? Yeah. You know, the economist YouGov had a poll in December that showed 20% of 18 and 19 year olds in the country believe the Holocaust is a myth. So that tells me that there's probably a, a strong need for this kind of education because this is not a trivial fact of history. This was a entire religion and ethnicity that was almost completely wiped off. 
the face of the earth and even till this day hasn't clawed back to the numbers that they had pre-Holocaust. And it's also something that's deeply connected to the history of America. More, more Jews moved to the U.S. than even to Israel during that period of time. And so it's a big part of our country's history. And so I do think it has a place in our curriculum. And I do think that among many evils, it is instructive about human nature, like how people could come together and, and perpetrate such a terrible atrocity. It's obviously relevant today because there still continues to be tons of anti-Semitism. I think the coupling of Gaza to me is is a provocative move because number one, it's ongoing right now. It's current events. There's very few standards that are related to current events for a good reason. You want to give a little bit of distance before you encode something into a curriculum. Second is there's a big dispute over whether Gaza is in fact a Holocaust or a genocide, but it's also like, to me, it's like an all lives matter type moment, right? It's like there's people with a particular historical claim and present day claim and you're being like, well, okay, like let's, let's couple it with every other possible claim. Right. And I think like, well, the proper thing to do in my opinion is deal with the claim in front of you and then have the present day contemporary debate about what is a genocide or not. And also give it time before you encode it into history. That's my opinion. That doesn't mean you don't teach it, right? Like teachers should teach current events and what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And I personally don't have a problem with even teachers having opinions about that. But I, I think that this was a provocative move, move and I think kind of sad because I, it seems like a no-brainer to have that in your curriculum. Yeah, I think everybody who fought against this bill becoming law lost all credibility with me period. There's no reason that we should be multiplying what kids learn. We should be adding. We shouldn't be subtracting and dividing, right? So if you want to teach about Gaza and you want to teach about Palestinian history too, I'm going to be a yes on that. I'm going to be a yes. But what I'm going to be a no on is shooting down a bill that requires students to learn about the Holocaust. Number one, because it has lots of educational value, right? Like it's it's like it's such a rich story and part of history to teach kids about the depth of the depravity of mankind. I think actually just it I don't know how you vote against this. I don't know how as a politician how you feel good that you say, yeah, I killed that bill. Like, you know, I stopped that from happening. So now kids aren't going to be able to learn about the Holocaust. Now at the same time, I'm saying this, this is, you know, this is I don't think this is duplicitous, but I was going to say, you know, Texas saying that you have to teach both sides of the Holocaust is also something, though, that I didn't appreciate and agree with. So I do think that there's some limits. I want you to have to learn it, but I want you to have to learn it in a specific way. I don't think there are two sides to the Holocaust. I think there's only one side to the Holocaust, and I think it's absurd to try and mandate that schools teach both sides. Quick question for you. Have you ever been to the Holocaust Museum? In D.C.? Yes. Yeah, I've been there. And then Yad Vashem, which is in, in Jerusalem, I've been there a few times. I've been a couple times. And what I have thought is this is better than any lesson that could ever be taught in a school. Yeah. And I can't remember which one it was. It might have been the D.C. one also has tremendous content on other genocides, like the Rwandan genocide and Cambodia, if I remember correctly. Um, it might have been a different museum um, I'm thinking of, but but that's actually interesting about this bill too, because they're shooting down that stuff too, right? Like they're <laughs> talking about, it's like, you know, I, I was telling you this when I saw you, you know, we saw each other over the weekend. I had a, an Uber driver who was from Burundi and his dad was killed in the, in the genocide in the early nineties because his dad was Tootsie and all that. And we were talking and all that. And I was like, so important not to forget these things. Like the, the, you know, those, those kids are now adults and it's obviously like, this is a universal story, unfortunately, like, like, like people of all cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds seem susceptible to this type of group think and it's it's incumbent on all of us. We all think we're going to be the ones who never fall victim to that kind of hatred and all that. And I would like to think we're right. But the only way we can be sure of it is if we truly understand those dynamics so that we could hope to not repeat them. Yeah. I mean, I think there should be something like genocide studies. It doesn't have to be yes. one version of it, you know, but yeah. they follow kind of a predictable pattern. 
like you just men- mentioned, the Hutus and the Tutsis, that was a manufactured hatred um, between those two groups, and it worked. Also, for, for the record, for people to know that if you watch Hotel Rwanda, the hotel now is a very booming, nice place to go. And Rwanda is now one of the safest places in Africa with the most miles of paved land. And it's the cleanest of all places in Africa, which is really amazing when you think about what it was and you know to what it became. So change is possible. So the last story that we have here on the list is the Supreme Court offers a possible roadmap for schools to diversify top programs. This is based upon something that was coming out of Northern Virginia, a recent decision by the Supreme Court to allow an elite magnet school to continue using a new admission system aimed at diversifying the student body. It is a pivotal moment for education and diversity. The decision comes amidst a national debate over the lack of Black and Hispanic students in top academic programs, sparking changes in admissions across admission systems, excuse me, across the country. And for many people in cities that have specialized programs or magnet schools that have specialized admission requirements, you know that this is an issue. Robbie, where you are in New York, you know, the thing that gets, you know, in the paper every year, once a year is like seven black kids getting into Stuyvesant or something like that. This became an issue in San Francisco and in in Virginia, because there's a little bit of scarcity amongst people in the upper classes that want to get their kids into these programs. And when they can't get in, they look for opportunities to change diversity issues to make sure that there's more seats for for the folks that already have a lot of seats. What's your thinking on this one? I kind of know we've talked about this a little bit. So what's your... What's your take on the Supreme Court thing here? I'm not going to rehash my feelings about the Thomas Jefferson High School and their local school board, which we've talked about before. I would say that just from a legal perspective, this definitely points the way to how not just high schools, but colleges adapt in the in the affirm, post-affirmative action world, where essentially what's happening here is they were using non-explicitly racial means to get at what they viewed as racial equity concerns. And I'm a little surprised that this particular court let this stand. And, but, but it, you know, like basically what they were doing was saying, all right, we're, you know, there were a few middle schools that were feeding predominantly this magnet school. So they were creating more geographic diversity requirements to, to kind of pull from multiple places. They created more qualitative metrics over the quantitative which I'm on record as as being a little bit hesitant on overusing qualitatives because they can be abused. I don't really have a full grasp on how they're using this mixture right now. And then the numbers changed. They weren't as dramatic as I think the doomsayers say. So uh, prior to this change, so the 2019-20 the school year, the school was 71% Asian American, 19% white, 5% multiracial, 3% Hispanic, 2% black. After the changes, it was 62% Asian American, 19% white, 7% black, 6% Hispanic. I suspect the the relative moderation of the, the flip may have colored the Supreme Court's feelings about this. And that I think if it were a 71% Asian to 10% Asian, 20% Asian or something, I suspect the Supreme Court might have felt differently about it. But I think given the fact that it fluctuated 10%, I think that they were satisfied that this wasn't too explicitly, you know, racial or like an attempt to create affirmative action by another means. Yeah, I think two things about this. The first one is that, you know, magnet schools were started on the theory that there should be no predominant group, that there should be kind of like a balancing of groups. That was like the theory of integration and of magnet schools in the beginning was that they would have a balanced population of a representative, a representative sample of the United States uh, and that there would be no dominant groups. And it's been very hard over time to stop schools from magnet schools from either becoming all black, all white, or all Asian and white. And they have to continually kind of jigger the the program to get it back to its original purpose. The original purpose of magnet schools was to prove that kids can learn together, like that kids can inhabit a space because there was just this idea that, you know, segregation was the way to go because kids just can't learn together and can't be in the same place. So I think this is the result of that being a very hard thing to maintain over time. Like since the 1970s, you've had lots of magnet schools that go all white 
in some cases, especially the specialized ones, not the ones that don't have specialized criteria, but the ones that have specialized criteria, they became a way for school districts to keep upper crust families in the district. So those families can say, I support public schools. My kids go to public schools. Like, you know, in Nashville, you had a particular school board member that used to come after you all the time about like, I'm, you know, in the public schools and whatever. And if you look at the public schools that her daughter was going to or son, I can't remember, it was a selective admission school that had very few black kids in it. So it wasn't like you're sending your kids to the same public schools that Nashville's, you know, low income kids are going to. So it's, you know, a safe haven. But here's the thing that I think is really ironic for the right. The right wing or the conservatives often say that our laws are fair because they're colorblind. Even if they have disproportionate outcomes for some, they say, yeah, but the law doesn't explicitly say anything about race. So it's fair. It's fair because the laws don't say anything about race. So therefore, it might not have a racist, it can't have a racist implication because it's colorblind. Everybody gets charged the same thing. And in a case like this, they're arguing the opposite. They're saying like, listen, even if these systems, if you're intending to reduce one racial group or another, even if you don't make the law explicitly, you know, color conscious, if you make it colorblind, it's still having the same effect. And that's kind of this like nuance. It's this, you know, they're arguing one thing in one case that colorblind laws don't cause disproportionate outcomes amongst races. And in this case, they're saying, yes, your colorblind law is kind of against whites and against Asians. So it's a it's an ironic thing. I don't know if you have any thing that you want to say about that. But I just think that that last one, I always look for inconsistency. That one to me is inconsistent. Yeah. I, I do think that this, you know, this, when we talked about this last time, this, there's certain messages and actions that the school board took that made me highly suspicious that they actually were racially motivated against Asian Americans, including text messages that they exchanged with each other, where they acknowledged that that was their intention, or at least they were very much aware of the impact and, and were joking about it, which I think is not appropriate for a public official to joke about, given that these are the hopes and dreams of families. Even if you are going to you know, make some tough decisions for them. That's not the tone you should be taking. And I think it was quite embarrassing for them, which is in part what fueled such extreme resentment and organizing on the ground there was that people got really upset. And I think people should manage these changes effectively because if you're going to ask people to sacrifice, which look, people can disagree with me about whether this was a good idea or not, but I think we can all agree that if you're going to ask a family or you're going to try to convince a family or inform a family that a policy is going to change that they'd been benefiting from, you should do it with respect. And I don't think the school board did that really effectively. In the end, I wouldn't rank this as a big injustice, even though I didn't love it. I think that a 10% shift here and there, you know, that, that is, those are real families who are going to be upset. But in the end, what are you going to do? You know, like the, the legitimacy of the system matters. And although I think like Asian Americans continue to feel like the system isn't serving them when these types of changes happen, there are a lot of other people who probably feel like the system is more legitimate for them. And that's what politics and democracy is all about. Like it, it, to me, like this is that school board has to run for reelection. And, you know, if they continue to get reelected, then this is, you know, this is democracy playing out. You know, there are multiple stakeholders in this town and magnet schools are controversial to begin with. And so whenever you carve out a space for people who you believe are exceptional, defining what is exceptional is inherently going to be a provocative move. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause oftentimes being rich is exceptional, right? Like yeah. having more money and more resources in your house, you know, <laughs> makes you exceptional. So like, I, I mean, you are exceptional, you know? Yeah. Well, high school, this is the thing. High school magnets bother me less than earlier grades. They're all going to have some correlation with, you know, income as all qualitative metrics by and large do as well. But what what I really get up about are these elementary school magnets, because then you're saying like mm -hmm, a kindergartner mm -hmm. is exceptional and it's often they're not universally testing. Right. So you're just basically who's motivated to show up to this test, prepare their kid for the test. And at that point, the kid hasn't been in school long enough for you to be able to say. But a lot of these places, you know, like Hunter and places like this in New York, like the kid gets in and then they're in for like till 12th grade. That's crazy. You know, that's just a way for rich people to get a private school education 
through the traditional public school system. Yeah. So I'll say this and we can move on to the main topic here and I won't do some long monologue about our main topic here so that we can dive right in. But I will say this, at the as a former school board member, there is nothing more insufferable than privileged parents. There is nothing that sucks more of your time out of your schedule and out of your term as a school board member than privileged parents who want everything for their kids and who talk a good game about equity. But at the end of the day, it's a zero-sum game. I don't care who they are, what ethnicity they are. They generally end up just being a couple of ethnicities. But no matter what, they are the most insufferable group of people ever. And they will not stop until they win everything. And they will tell you to your face that they will get you out of office if you don't give them what they want. They will organize in ways that the, that journalists will pay attention to more than they pay attention to poor people or the, the kids who are in need of real advocates, which is why when I was a school board Remember, I was an eternal advocate for low-income people and for marginalized, historically marginalized people, and not for the folks that would come to me and demand things and threaten. They were very good with threats. They would let you know in no uncertain way that we control things here. And if you want a second term, you better like give us what we want. And I didn't want a second term. So I actually governed like I didn't want a second term. So they hated me. They hated me because I called them out as I'm doing right now as the most insufferable group of people in all of politics, especially the ones that want to be in a public system so that they can have the cachet of saying that their values are still with public education. But what they really, really want is a private school or private education on a public dime. And and, and these people actually don't even agree with vouchers or anything. They're so anti-voucher, but they really just, they kind of do want vouchers. They kind of want vouchers, right? That's why I'm kind of leaning in the direction of, this is not the segment, but one of the reasons why I'm leaning towards ESAs and vouchers is like, well, might as well just give them to everybody if we're just going to give them to the, the richest people who, by the way, already are going to private schools in huge numbers anyway. Now, obviously, how you design that system, the devil's in the details. And I'm sure my my esteemed opponents in the debate, if I were them, would make a lot out of the inequities even in the voucher system, which are real in most of them. And often the people passing those laws aren't always the most genuine about creating a universal, excellent education system, which will make it a fun debate, right? Because the implementation matters a lot. The theory theory is one thing, and then the reality is a whole other thing. Yeah, we're going to have to find ways to make sure that marginalized people have more power in these systems and all of these systems, right? Because I think no matter what you do, they almost always end up benefiting the rich and, or, or people that have more resources and don't need any more privilege. Just That's just America. That's just the way things work. Like every system seems to eventually bend to people that don't need as much help. But here we are. And this is, you know, This is the world we live in. Now let's get to the main conversation, the meat here. And, you know, I had a lot more to say about this particular story that I'm going to set up, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say that over the last couple of years, it's it's not a secret to anybody that there has been an immense culture war. Uh, There have been laws that have been passed around book bans and what teachers can teach and how we should view history for our kids and whatever. We've talked about that a lot on this show, but now the Pew Research says that the public isn't exactly enamored with any of those curriculum battles. And there's lots of information in this new study that they've done. It's called Race and LGBTQ Issues in K-12 Schools, What Teachers, Teens, and the U.S. Public Say About Current Curriculum Debates. This is something you can find if you go to the Pew Research Center. You can find it there on their website. Some interesting findings here. You know, I don't know which ones you, having looked at this, Robbie, would think are the most interesting, and there's a lot. So, you know, I don't want to <laughs> try and give an exhausted list. But, you know, some things that stick out is that teachers do believe that the debates have impacted their teaching and what they can teach. Teachers believe that they should have more control over what they teach in their classroom. And more teachers believe that parents shouldn't be able to opt out of important topics like race, but I don't think that there's as the equal consensus around issues of gender identity. So some top lines there, 
What do you think is interesting about this, Ravi? Well, you know, one thing that's not surprising is that Democratic teachers are more likely than Republican teachers to say that the school board and parents have too much influence. The parent point I want to come back to because I think that's such a fascinating discussion. Uh, But if you look at the crosstabs here, the majority of both Democrats and Republicans feel that the local school board has too much power. The federal government has too much power. Parents have too much power. All parties are agreed on that. Like, well, the weighting is a little different for each, but that's fascinating. And, and there's like a wrinkle on the federal government part, because if you look at Democrats, actually the winner there is just the right amount on federal government, but still close. The What I find fascinating as a former school principal is that principals seem to be relatively popular within you know the ranks of teachers. So um, 61% of teachers say that principals have just the right amount of power and influence. And more of the remaining folks feel like they should, the principals should have more influence, not less. So good job, principals out there. Seems like you're, you're doing something right. The principals are getting a free pass maybe here. And I don't know that I've seen any other information about principals, how principals are perceived. Yeah, nobody cares about the principals. Because in a lot of districts, the principals are are like they're they're mid-level bureaucrats who don't have a lot of control. This is one of the many reasons why I love charter schools is if you're a principal of a, a New York City public school, they're like, okay, you're in charge. And like, let's use the metaphor if it were a restaurant. They'd be like, okay, this is your restaurant, Chris. Now you're like, oh, great. I want to change the ingredients we use in our food. You'd be like, no, 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 you can't do that. Be like, okay, well, I want to change at least the items on the menu. Like, no, 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 you can't do that. You'll be like, well, okay, can I hire and fire my own wait staff? No, no, you can't do that. Can I set my own hours? No, you can't do that. Can I change the font on my menu? No, no, <laughs> slow down, buddy. Slow down. Can I give feedback to my staff members at regular intervals? Well, okay, you could do it at a certain points, but we're going to like deeply constrain how you do that. Congratulations, you promoted. You're a school principal, Chris. Now it's your responsibility to move these people to action and you're going to be held accountable for it. Good luck. Don't you feel like teachers feel that way a little bit too of like, you have to get kids to learn. You have to meet these standards and we're going to tell you exactly how to do it. And we're going to script your lessons for you on how to do it. And that's regardless of who's in your classroom or how much you know about them or, you know, what special needs you got going on in your classroom that you as a professional have figured out, we're going to give you the script and you're going to follow the script. And if the script doesn't work, it's going to be your fault. And if it does work, it's going to be our credit. Like we're going to get the credit for it. I think it depends on where you are. I think in New York, where I mentioned, it's very it's very centered on teacher autonomy. Whereas in other places, like let's say you work at Success Academy in New York, which you and I both like, I would never want to be a teacher there because you are heavily scripted there. Like your lessons are, you know, like they have it down to the word almost, like what you're going to say in these lessons. And although perhaps effective in their own way, I just would not want to work there. Whereas like, you know, like if I were to go down the street to the DOE school, I might not want to send my kid there, depending on which one it is. Like my middle school, for example, IS-51, my teachers could do whatever they want, including uh, like, you know, very regularly what a teacher would do is put page numbers on the board and tell me to answer questions at the end of the chapter, put their feet up. And then when we answer the questions and they don't even collect them. So it's like, what was this? What were we doing here? And that teacher was totally within their rights to do that. Uh, and so, but it depends on where you are. I imagine some districts are way more prescriptive than others. Let's break down a couple of the pieces here with stats that I think are important. So one is about the frequency of discussions. So 56% of teachers report that topics related to racism and racial inequality come up at least sometimes in their classrooms, compared to 29% for sexual orientation and gender identity. Should we be from the outside saying that they can, when these things come up in class, the teachers can't have any leeway to talk about them? I think teachers should have a lot of leeway uh, to talk about things, generally speaking. I think teachers should have leeway to make mistakes. Like, like I, I can have my opinion about what's an appropriate way to handle a lot of things. I don't think that people should be so afraid to talk about the life events of kids, right? I think people get... Like parents get upset and they get their back up if they feel like a, a teacher steering their kids in a certain direction, whether it's politically or in life or something, and that they're keeping that from the parents without good reason. 
that's an interesting debate, right? Like what should a parent know and not know and what's an appropriate level of intervention for teachers and all that. I think, I think teachers should be very careful to keep a politically neutral stance, especially in places that are politically divided, because that's just, you know, that's just when we're, when you're not like, like, let's say you live in, you know, Franklin, Tennessee and there, or Staten Island, New York, where there's like, um, a good mixture of people who, you know, hate Trump and love Trump or whatever. Like, I'm not sure the teachers should be weighing in as much as I hate Trump myself, like, and talk about it on a podcast. I'm not sure that's where the teachers should be, especially since these are public institutions. But like, if a kid's like struggling with their identity and their, and they need somebody to talk to whatever, I don't think that teacher should be paralyzed to talk to the kid be, for fear of losing their job. I don't think that's a healthy climate for anybody. You know, one of the points in this study is that 64% of teachers believe students should learn that the legacy of slavery still affects the position of black people in American society today. I, I, I have a point to make about this particular thing, but I want to ask you, what about the percentage of people that don't believe that point? that legacy has had a continuous effect on the black people up until today. I mean, I would just have a lot of questions. I mean, I know people in my life who would probably answer that way in a question. I suspect that there are two, two, two different groups there. There's one group that actually, if you really push them, do believe it, but they signal politically. They don't want to give that ground because they feel like it's giving into some kind of woke agenda that they're against. And then I think there's another part of that group that truly believe what they said. And they like these people will say things like they probably believe. I saw a version of this in India when you talk about the Hindu Muslim divide. If you ask certain fundamentalists in India, they'll say that Muslims actually have it better than Hindus in a country that's majority, majority Hindu. It's a similar talking point and saying like, oh, you know, this gets to the affirmative action debate too. It's like, I think a lot of those people would actually answer that black people have it better in America. That's what they truly believe. And so I think for those people, the existence of those people doesn't surprise me. And how you handle them is a whole different story, right? Like, I think it's a, it's a very tough question how you talk to people like that. What if the public is wrong? This is the overarching thing that I was going to ask you, the, the thing that I think to me is really an issue, which is I don't care what people think. I don't care what opinion polls pop up. Opinion polls over time, if you look at them, they have, the public has been deeply stupid about many things that education can't be stupid about, right? There's just kind of a, a, a scientific consensus on how old the planet is. There is a scientific consensus on gravity. There's a scientific consensus on evolution versus creationism. And if you were to poll the American public, there has always been a portion and sometimes the majority of the public that have had a deeply ignorant opinion about something that education and educators should not participate in, right? Because education is a science. I know that many people in education like to consider it an art <laughs> so that they can say, oh, you can't measure anything that we do or whatever. It's not an art. It's literally a science. And science is not, it doesn't lend itself to faith-based thinking. I am a Christian. I have many things that I, I have deep faith about. But I'm not trying to regulate the public's thinking on scientific issues based on my faith. And I think what a lot of people are, are doing, let's just take gender, for instance. People have opinions about gender that are not backed up by science. They're deeply held opinions. They say, I don't think that. You know, when you, you fill in the blank with that, that statement, I don't think that. And it's kind of like, I don't care what you think. I care what the consensus of people who are deeply educated on these issues and spend all their time in their lives studying them. I care what they think about more than I care what the guy living next door to me who thinks that, you know, Bud Light made his, his kids gay or something. I don't know. Like, like it, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I keep saying the same thing over multiple shows. I think smart people are losing. I think the country's morons are winning. I, you know, I, I don't, I, I share your, your overall concern with some of these dynamics. I, I do think smart people are still holding the line in a lot of places. I also think that we have to be careful not to oversell you know, what we think that consensus is at times. Like, I think the COVID pandemic, I think, did a lot of damage to the credibility of so-called science as a process, because I think a minority of science advocates did foolish things. And I don't think that those foolish things are 
confined to any one position. You know, I think there are people who are like, I helped create the mRNA vaccine and I'm here to tell you it's poisoning you. And then there are scientists who are like, you know, you're killing grandma if you don't, you know, wear a mask in school. And I think like, and I don't think those are equal positions. I think one of those groups did more damage than the other. But I do think like science became a reflection of our polarization in ways that I think made people deeply distrustful in a way that if they look at our Supreme Court, they say like, I'm supposed to trust the law. And, you know, the, the, that, you know, the lady justice is blind. But then I look at these people who seem to always vote in, in line with their politics. And so I think people who believe in scientists, especially the scientists, need to be really careful not to play politics. But one thing that I think was interesting in this poll is how much people say that parents have too much influence. And uh, I think that's notable because I think also parents feel like other parents have too much influence. Like what we were talking about in some previous segments, like where there are a minority of parents who seem to have influence over everybody else. You know, I, I think that the role of parents should be right-sized within this system. Like, I don't think this is a direct democracy. And, I, and even a direct democracy would be better than this sort of, this rule by the extreme minority within our system who just the squeakiest of squeaky wheels seems to get whatever they want. Yeah. And I think, you know, the way to, so on your point about the science and the scientists, I don't think any scientist believe that the scientific method and the way of thinking about science is that they're hundred percent right all of the time. I think they think that you fail a lot and that's how you come up with knowing like what's what is that you fail constantly in science. That's what science is. It's like testing and failing until you start developing some, you know, replicable ideas about what truth is over time. So because you got some things wrong during COVID, only the most ignorant Americans believe that that is a reason to discount science. Oh, you got it wrong. Or you said this thing about public health that didn't turn out to be true or whatnot. That's not even a scientific way of thinking. That's not even the way science works. It's like, oh, this is what we thought at the time. And we were putting these things into practice because there was an emergency that we had to give quick opinions about. And we gave what we, you know, what we could think scientifically at the time. But we were wrong about some things. That doesn't bolster the guy sitting at home who thinks that horse paste was actually the real cure for COVID. Like, because, you know, Bubba sitting in his armchair, like listening to a whole bunch of right wing media thinks, oh, my God, I'm the smartest person ever because I thought all along that, you know, I knew better than scientists. Anyways, you know, this is me being me, like when I, when I say those things, but I mean, take something like views on teaching gender identity. A third of teachers think students should learn that gender identity can be different from the sex assigned at birth. One third of teachers think that that is something that should be taught. And my question would be, what does science say about that particular thing? Because if science says that more than a third of, of people who are educated to teach should know better than that, then I'm going to go with science. So, so actually, let me back up. What do you make of that one point? A third of teachers think that students should learn very specifically that gender identity can be different from the sex assigned at birth. Yeah, I think that this is an area that's hotly disputed in America right now. And I'm not sure we should force people to teach it any certain way. Like, that's my opinion about it. Like, it's it's still a debate that is, has not been resolved. And science has some things to say about it, but not enough to say that there's only one position to have on that, in my opinion. And so although I have my opinions, I wouldn't want to make it orthodoxy. So if only a third of teachers are saying that they're convinced of that, then my sense is, well, we shouldn't be forcing anybody to teach it a certain way. So I'm going to go back to my question, though, <laughs> which is, you just said, in my opinion, several times. But I don't think science has an answer to what you just said. You just said, you, you just said I don't think that science has an answer. My question is, what does science say about this? I mean, there, science is a process. Okay, Science is not like a code that's, you know, written, you know, in, in a tablet, you know, etched into a tablet. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think science has a much clearer answer when it comes to the, the question of what is male or female sex than it has to do with gender identity. And I think gender identity is a blend of multiple disciplines, science being one of them. And my very 
superficial understanding of the science is that there are scientists who have wildly different opinions about that. <laughs> so this is my point, Robbie. You just made my point for me. But this is when we make the science... No, this is where the scientists lose their credibility, is if we force the scientists to reflect our politics. And then people start to say, well, okay, like this isn't science anymore. This is politics. But nobody's... No, I'm not asking to f- reflect. I'm, I'm trying to say, don't reflect my politics. Don't care about what my opinion is or what I think. That's not the issue. The issue is what does science say about this particular thing? And first of all, you you could even back up a little further than that and say which science which sciences should take priority on this particular question and what do those individual sciences have to say about this? Cuz you know, there's like biology, there's social sciences, whatever. What is gender? What is gender identity? What is sex? Like these things have definitions, right? So you have, you know, like the American Medical Association, you have associations that deal with pediatrics, you have all these kind of august bodies of thinking people who argue with each other internally, but they do come to some conclusions that change over time. Right. So maybe the way that they thought about this particular issue was different in 1985 than it was in 95 than it was in 2005. But there has been kind of like a steady march towards more and more kind of, you know, developed opinions about these things from a scientific basis, not from individual basis. Because, listen, my religion tells me to think very specifically about some things, but I'm not like going to pass those off as kind of like with the consensus is scientifically about these things. So anyways, what I'm pushing for, I think in these cases is that, that these polls are good for one thing to know what people think and where they are. But I don't think that we can have a working democracy if we are always polling around what people think, but we're not polling around what empirical information tells us about the thing that we're talking about. And I think we undersell the empirical information sometimes. We say, well, you know, the scientists are unclear on climate change. They're not. They're really not. (laughs) Like, there is a consensus. And, you know, people will say, yeah, but I read these five scientists that say that, like, you know, it's not caused by anything that we're doing and blah, 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 whatever. To which that becomes a very hard conversation to have because now you're talking with someone who is actually more about witchcraft than they are about science. And it's hard to have a conversation with people who believe that their thoughts and those things actually should make public policy. I want to be wrong sometimes. Like, listen, make public, if I am wrong, make public policy that makes my wrongness not something that everybody has to live under. Is that a fair opinion? Or do you think that that is being heavy handed on, on the part of the public that I keep pointing out are not thinking like rationally about some of these issues? Yeah. I just like, again, I'm just like, the question of what science, like when we talk about science, like I just, the question of what science is and who's, which scientific opinion matters is very hard to answer because scientists are Democrats to Republicans. They're, you know, like I listen to, you know, my favorite medical podcast is by this guy named Dr. Peter Tia, who's like written all these best-selling books or whatever. He has a different opinion on gender identity than I personally have. And if I were to say, okay, I'm just going to quote unquote, trust the science, then I'd be like, all right, like, actually, like, it would come out the opposite of what you and I believe on the subject. And then I could find a ton of other scientists who say the opposite. And, and I, and it's not a a climate change thing where 99% of scientists say the same thing. Right. And so I think the question is like, who do you trust? Uh, and when do you fall, when, when do you actually use the authority of the word science to say science has settled this matter for now? And I think that's a tool that we shouldn't overuse because once you say science settles it, then, and, and if you happen to be wrong, then science as a, as a body and as an argument takes a hit. Uh, and that's, that's where I think we should be careful because if people feel like you're disingenuous, not that I'm saying you are, but people feel like we are disingenuously throwing around the word science as a cover for our politics, then I think we're putting, we're getting ourselves in trouble here. Yeah. You've heard me say it on previous shows. We've talked about the science of reading and now people are starting to get interested in the science of math. And I'm deeply interested in the science of science because I think it's the thing that the public is the most ignorant about. And when they talk about science, they don't even know how science works. They, you know, even the idea that scientists are Republicans and Democrats and that drives the process of science 
actually, yes, they are Republicans and Democrats working on the same research with each other. And their method actually is doesn't lend itself to having a Democratic opinion about it or a Republican opinion about it, because that's not the way the discipline works. That's not how you actually study cancer. That's not how you study like kidney transplants. That's not how you study anything, right? You can be whatever you want. You can be all these different backgrounds, but it's only like the politicizing of these issues that has made people think that science is that suspicious. It is not the way that it's not because that's the way science works at all. There's no such thing as a Fox News scientist and a CNN scientist. And that is not how you bring medications, for instance, to market, right? Like the, the, I'm sure that Pfizer has people of all political backgrounds working in those laboratories, but I don't think you bring kind of like a vaccine to market by people sitting around with their opinions, right? It's through trials and it's through a shared process. And that's why the American Medical Association has an opinion about things that are based on their discipline. And so do the people who study sociology and these other things. I guess the only thing I'm pushing for is this polling stuff, like what people believe in the polling, I think is interesting to know what people feel. It's interesting to know what they think, but I don't know that public policy on what kids should learn in schools should be based on that because a big number of these people, let me give you a different statistic. This is about science. So in a 2014 Pew Research survey found that 83% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents say that government investment in basic scientific research pays off in the long run, compared with just 55% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents, right? I don't know what's useful about that except for to say, like, I don't think that that's how we should determine whether or not the United States should invest in science education and science, you know, in general. And while I think these polls, I love the polls. I love knowing what people think. I just worry that, like, there was a period in time where the majority of people thought that, as a matter of fact, actually, there were states outlawing the teaching of evolution at one point literally outlawing the ability for teachers to teach evolution because they were creationist states. And they, after they moved on from that, they started mandating teaching both evolution and creationism and creation science. And it's hard for me sometimes when I look at some of these issues, specifically around the gender stuff, for me not to be, for not, for me not to hearken back to the evolution trials. Yeah, there's no other way to do it though, right? Like we only we only have democracy and representative democracy in our toolbox right now. I mean, we could have an autocracy, uh, but I'm not sure that would get us the result we want either. So like the the answer is to have debates about these things and come to a consensus uh, either about the underlying issue but we're not a direct democracy or about the people we want to make decisions about those issues. And right now we have a mixture of the two. And, you know, oftentimes we're electing people in this representative democracy of ours that don't believe what you and I believe. And I think that means we just got to keep having the conversation. I think that's true. Well, listen, I'm passionate about the issue and this has been a riveting conversation. I do think that people should go for yourself, go to the Pew Research Center website and look at the study yourself. Again, it's called Race and LGBTQ Issues in K-12 Schools, What Teachers, Teens and the U.S. Public Say About Current Curriculum Debates. And I think you will find it like I did, like really interesting to dive into where the different political groups are falling and where teachers are saying that it's impacting and affecting their job. And for me, that's one of the most important ones because we do have to pay attention to the people that are teaching our kids every day. Like <laughs> if they are not happy, there's going to be some, I think some real issues for us to face. So again, we appreciate you as always for listening to this show, share it, like it, send it to other people and leave us a review. We would love it if you leave us a review about how you like the show. And if you think that Ravi is right, don't leave anything. Just leave it if you think that I'm right. And that's a good rule for the show. <laughs> Anyways, this has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. We appreciate you as always. See you next time. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris, Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.